This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Salut, je parle français, anglais, espagnol. Hola, hablo español, inglés y portugués. Hi, I speak English and French. Ciao, parlo italiano e inglese. Siempre ha deseado saber lo que es una naranja. I was re-watching a stand-up routine the other day from one of my favorite Spanish comedians, Luis Piedraita, because I was introducing his work to a friend who had never heard of him. Like many comedians I love, his routines tend to center on the little curiosities of life that we never really stop to actively think about. In this case, he was talking about oranges. And it was going well until this bit. The audience roared with laughter, as you could tell. But my friend was completely silent and a little confused. They didn't get it at all. It's worth mentioning my friend doesn't speak Spanish, and so the wordplay in that joke meant nothing to them. In fact, it would have gone completely unnoticed were it not for the audience's laughter. This led me to a horrible realization. When I'm watching comedy in a language I don't speak, even with subtitles, how much nuance is flying right past me, undetected? How often am I, unknowingly, the person who didn't get the joke? Welcome to Atlas Lingue, a show where we talk about languages, about the joyful, the challenging, and the joyfully challenging aspects of everyday communication. I'm Luis Lopez, and today we're going to talk about humor in translation. Nothing can take away the painful memory of a joke that doesn't land. But maybe, just maybe, there is a way to easily translate humor from one language or culture to another. And if there is, I'd very much like to know about it. In hopes of finding out and avoiding more comedic confusion, let's call someone who knows that struggle all too well. A comedian who does stand-up in two languages. For example, there is this joke that I do about me 
thinking about having kids uh, with my girlfriend because she's already ready basically and I'm not but I do love kids that's what I say I do love kids but I think the ideal for me right now would be a foster kid which is basically a rental and then I start talking and comparing the rental kid to the rental car but very you know sometimes there is the uh, this rental thing it's already something that you might not understand not the rental but the foster the foster kid concept this is Tiziano Labella. He's a bilingual comedian who currently lives in London, but is originally from Rome, Italy. I was about to ask, how do you say foster kid in Italian? Because it's a less known concept. English people understand immediately. And that's why even if it's a dark subject and a dark joke, really, they're more likely to laugh. And Italians are not, because if some of them, you know, miss a bit, a tiny bit in that, it's very important for the rest of the joke to land. So even the, the last punchline will suffer from it. So maybe it wasn't that my friend completely missed the point of the joke. It could have been that they only missed the slightest detail. But in a delicate art like comedy, every detail adds up. There are some stuff that I find very funny, but I don't do it in front of an Italian audience because I tried and tried and tried and they don't work because there's not the right context, because they are not used to, to a certain kind of humor. It just doesn't work, as much as it is painful to admit it. Painful it is indeed. If cultural context is so important though, I wonder how someone bilingual like Tiziano makes his comedy work. But I did find myself, especially this last two years, to shape and select better sets that I decide to show in front of a specific audience. It sounds like it might just be best to stick to jokes in one's original language then. But what if you hear something really funny and you really want to share it with friends who speak another language? How do you go about translating that? Rarely, I gotta say. Hardly ever I will take a joke that I brought in uh, English and translate it in Italian unless there is like these jokes that don't need maybe a context, which is very hard to find. If you do it, you need to translate the English set into the Italian that you speak, like your way of speaking Italian. It doesn't matter if that sentence in English is translated into Italian in that correct Italian. It's not the way I speak. It's not the way I am. So it was going to sound very, very fake and really, really not funny. I learned that the hard way. So translating a joke requires a double translation. First, you translate it from one language into another. But that on its own isn't enough. You need to translate the joke into your particular way of speaking as well. In Italy, you feel it a lot for the cultural differences that there are among the regions and for the language as well. Everybody's laughing their pants off and you don't understand anything because it's just dialect. Sounds like this is a pretty awkward problem, too. Everyone's laughing except you, even if you speak the same language. I saw this amazing comedian who will never remember the name of, but he was from Sardinia. And he was doing some jokes that I wasn't really understanding, not much for the language, which is already hard, but also because it was referring to the fact that they were 
short, like stereotypically speaking, but all this private stuff that I wouldn't know, or food that they eat there, and all these things, or part of that region that was poor, and I didn't know that. So it was weird and very, very interesting to laugh and not to laugh at that for not understanding. But England happens as well. I mean, if you go up the north or even just outside London, I found that they are more likely to laugh at different things. Let's go back to Luis Piedraita's joke, the one I showed at the beginning of the episode. Maybe the fact that his joke was originally in Spanish wasn't the only problem. Now that I think about it, even other Spanish speakers might not have gotten it because of a slight cultural difference. The punchline, after all, makes use of a colloquial phrase from Spain, which you would have to be aware of to find it funny. Oh gosh, laughter is starting to sound less and less like the best medicine and more and more like a minefield. You know, when you get used to behave perfectly in terms of who you are and what comedian you want to be in front of every different kind of crowd, you're going to be fine. It's just about how you show yourself. Well, that's a relief. That might solve the multilingual partygoers dilemma. But I can't help but wonder, what about comedy that isn't in front of a live audience? For example, recorded specials, where you don't know who your audience is going to be, where they're from, or even what languages they speak. I don't watch the English specials with Italian subtitles because it wasn't a nice experience. That's the problem of the timing as well. That's usually most a major problem, actually. They spoil and ruin the joke so much. Yikes, I think we've all been there. When a subtitle spoils the punchline before the comedian has a chance to take you there. But what about comedies that were made to be watched in more than one language? I remember watching the HBO series Los Espookies two years ago, which takes place in both Latin America and the United States. Unlike most Netflix shows, the show was created with subtitles, in either Spanish or English whenever the other language was being spoken. Because the writers were bilingual, they were able to time their jokes perfectly and translate them as closely as possible. In their case, the use of two languages could make their comedy even funnier. Unfortunately, such miracles require that you and your audience already have a lot in common. And not all of us are so lucky. I still want to know if there's a better way to land a joke in another language, so I'm consulting an expert on the official theory of comedy. Jerome Vandele, professor of translation studies at Ghent University in the Flemish region of Belgium. Basically, a licensed joke explainer. Well, when we talk about humor and the difficulty to translate humor, there is always much focus on wordplay being the most tricky aspect of humor translation. But actually, I think implicit background knowledge and social connotations of language use may be even harder to translate. Usually in translation, when the target audience does not possess the implicit background knowledge required to understand a message, well, then the translator can be somewhat more explicit. But the problem of this uh, strategy for humor is that humor rests on implicitness. 
In other words, the usual strategy doesn't work. Usually, a translator can paraphrase a difficult concept in the target language. But in comedy? If you have to explain a joke, or parts of a joke, perhaps better give the explanation beforehand, because it, well, it tends to kill the joke a bit less, let's say. Good to know. But if we can't explain a joke, and focusing on wordplay alone doesn't work, and subtitling spoils our timing, where else can we turn to? I can't seem to get to the bottom of it, so maybe we should take a step backward. How do we know what's funny in the first place? What even is humor? We all know what humor is. You know humor when you feel humor. But then how do you define it? Well, the first and easiest answer would be that humor is what makes you laugh or smile, or at least have an inner feeling that tends to push you towards laughing or smiling. <laughs> Something like that. But this can only be a first step because of course people often laugh and smile, although there is no humor around. Gee, thanks, Sherlock. See, that's funny only if you know the reference. Humor is a combination of a message and a response, and that this response is an emotion, an emotion for which there is no generally agreed upon name in English, but which exists, which has sometimes been called mirth or the humor feeling or the feeling of non-seriousness or amusement or exhilaration. We know this feeling and we know that it is contagious. Contagious in the sense that other people who see you laugh or who notice that you are in a state of mirth are likely to get in the same state as well or are likely to laugh as well. It is very much a social phenomenon. It is something we especially do when we are accompanied. So we may conclude that humor is an audience's and a humorist's shared pleasurable emotive response in the case of the audience, a response to noticing and understanding and resolving or situating a certain incongruity in a communication, which produces a sense of emotional communion with the communicator. That is to say, we find something funny because it makes sense and doesn't make sense at the same time. We understand what is being said, but know that it isn't necessarily true, or at least not meant to be taken seriously. In other words, we know that it's a joke. Scholars of humor call this incongruity theory. But potentially, there is also an exclusion of others who do not notice, understand, or appreciate the incongruity. This is where background knowledge and cultural context come in. And as we've seen, this cultural context can be very specific, even within the same language. Members of a community communicate with each other through language and aspects of the language use. A certain accent, a certain way of saying things also signal identity, perhaps common ground. To the extent that language transmits identity, it may be a form of communication, but it may also be a form of excommunication, so to speak. Language brings us closer together. But as a group of people get closer together, they can become more and more distanced from everyone else. Kind of like an inside joke, 
We all know that special feeling of laughing at something that only a few people can understand. But we also know how isolating it can be when you're not one of those people in on the joke. Let's hear an example. What is the difference between people from Abu Dhabi and people from Dubai? Well, the people from Dubai do not like the Flintstones, but the people from Abu Dhabi do. What does this illustrate? The Abu Dhabi do refers, obviously, for those who know the Flintstones, to the famous exclamation. But of course, that's not all of it. It's also important that people realize that they're in a sort of a special sort of communication, the humorous communication. And so it's not only important to understand what is being said, it is also important to realize that this is not meant seriously, that this is just meant as a joke. This reminds me of something that has happened to me before, more than once. Sometimes I try to say something funny in a conversation, but the other person wasn't expecting humor, it just looks at me with confusion, and it can be a little awkward. And in that sense, there's always an aspect and dynamics of inferiority and superiority playing in humor. In order to understand the Abu Dhabi joke, for instance, you need to know who the Flintstones were, and what the Flintstones said, and how this connects to the answer in this uh, joke question. In that way, you become an insider if you know this, but you remain an outsider if you don't, or also when you don't like this kind of humor. So the positive value of humor is only positive for those who are on the inside. And it can become a negative value for those who remain on the outside. So this issue of exclusion and inclusion can have way more serious consequences than a joke that doesn't land. I invite students to reflect on the contingency of linguistic correctness and linguistic identity. It's a power issue. And don't feel better just because you speak in a certain way and not in another way. Avoid excommunication and let communication prevail. As good as it feels to have an inside joke, or excommunication as academics define it, laughter is best when it's something we all do together. We shouldn't exclude people on the basis of how they speak or what they understand. Which brings me back to my predicament. Now let's look at an example of a successfully translated joke. I can give you an example of a very creative, smart Spanish translation of a, a very difficult scene taken from the American classical comedy, The Naked Gun. Well, the scene is one in which Drebin tells his uh, girlfriend, Jane Spencer, about dramatic experiences in love. And what he says is the following. Well, there's an exchange over dinner. Drebin says, oh, it's the same old story. Boy finds girl, girl finds boy, boy loses girl. Girl finds boy, boy forgets girl, boy remembers girl. Girl dies in a tragic blim accident over the orange bowl on New Year's Day. <laughs> she replies, good year? And he says, no, the worst. What is especially difficult to translate, of course, is the reference to the Orange Bowl and New Year's Day and then Goodyear.
chica muere en trágico accidente en globo anunciando pescado en conserva del norte. To which she replies, bonito, and he says, no, fue horrible. There's still reference to a blimp accident, and now the publicity is for pescado en conserva del norte, which is a Spanish culture-specific element. And Jane replies, bonito, which is of course a pun because it refers both to the fish and it may refer absurdly in Drebin's interpretation then to a question regarding his state, his emotional state or the year, an evaluation of the year he had or the time he had and he said no, fue horrible, no it was horrible. So bonito is both, was it nice or uh, tuna fish? <laughs> Not bad. Or shall I say, que bonito? Well, it sounds like there's limited options. Either you explain the joke to your audience, which could kill the comedy, or you change the details of the joke altogether to fit the target culture. Or you get really lucky, like Titiano said, and your joke lands in multiple languages. But that's rare. It's strange that something as inherently human as laughter can be so dependent on where we come from. Surely there must be something that we can all find funny, regardless of what language we speak. It seems like I'm going deeper into the rabbit hole of humor. Maybe it might help to look at comedians who have truly become world famous, even bridging generational gaps. And the names that come to mind are Charlie Chaplin, Mr. Bean, and the more recent phenomenon of Kabi Lame, an Italian guy who surpassed the popularity of many TikTok celebrities and reached over a hundred million followers. All this without saying a single word. He just debunks viral videos depicting life hacks with a simple shrug. And it's hilarious. Maybe instead of racking my brain around finding a joke that lands in any language, I should find a joke that involves no spoken language at all. When I travel to another country, I request to visit Children Cancer Hospital. Because over there, I don't need the language. I can do whatever I want with the movement. Not a lot has to be done, and the kids would be happy. This is Ofer Bloom, the vice president and co-founder of the World Mime Organization. He's an expert and lover of all things mime meaning non-verbal, often humorous performance art. In short, he's a perfect guest for a podcast. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't help myself. But basically, he believes no language barrier can stop a mime, or anyone else for that matter, from expressing themselves. As long as our blood is red, and as long as we need oxygen to breathe, there is a need to express. It's uncontrollable. It's in the human gene. That's why mime is still surviving, although in different ways. I don't think you'll ever see a mime that doesn't move his hands, you know, and become a little bit emotional. Uh, we had over 35 Zooms this year. That's a lot uh, in the organization. And we hosted every possible mime in the world and all the masters and the most common thing is the use of hands and uh, face expressions 
no matter what culture they come from. Clowning is not an easy job because let's say a clown in a circus would have to know everything that he is making a joke of. He has to do it perfectly first before he can actually make a joke of it. So if he has to joke around with the lions, first he needs to be able to control them as a trainer, yeah? Or if he goes up on the trapeze up, uh, up in the air, first he needs to know how to do trapeze very well before he can joke around about his life and so forth. Perhaps verbal comedy can take a page out of physical comedy's book. You need to know your subject and know the risks before daring to make a joke. The clown lives the moment. He doesn't leave the past or the future. He can only react to whatever he is and where he is now. Where a mime goes through an epoch of time, I can, uh, in a few minutes, be born, grow up, go to school, go to the army, get married, have a child. The child will leave the house. I will be left alone. Suddenly my body is not well. I'll have a cane. I'll sit in the park, I'll grow older, I'll hear the birds, I'll see my grandsons, and I'll die. A clown will not say a story like that. A clown will only have this moment to make his, not necessarily comedy, but his reaction. So physical comedy, like verbal comedy, has many different flavors. Some jokes are quick, witty reactions or observations, and others are longer narratives that require a little emotional investment. But while physical comedy may come closer to a, quote, universal comedic language, there are still cultural differences. The difference in culture and the permission to express yourself within that culture perhaps puts boundaries or limits in certain places on what to do and not do. When I travel to another country, Istanbul, or in Tbilisi, Georgia, for example, that's when I realized how different the slang sign language is for the kids. And it was a challenge. The first hour, hour and a half, they had to teach me. Why are they not laughing from it? Normally people laugh from this. Why are they scared of me? I'm not making any fast moves or gestures right now. It turns out learning the physicality of a culture is just as important as learning the language in order to know what makes them smile. If you go to a country to visit and to travel and to enjoy, take the first two days, sit from morning to evening in a coffee shop outside, have one coffee after the other and look at the people. See how they talk to each other, how they go up into a taxi, what happens when a, a couple fight. Take a look at that businessman in the side of the coffee shop, how he's presenting himself, how the waiter is serving you. And as you do observe the passers-by, you'll also learn what makes them laugh. Is it more clothes like Sweden? Uh, you know, where they have the vast spaces and they're each one by themselves? Or is it more warm, like in the Middle East, where everything is more temperament? And 
if you learn that before you start the interaction, you find the key to touch the people from the beginning. This is especially true if you think that the art of mime is a slow art, where not only gestures play a part. They made a white face, black stripes for the eyebrows, big red mouth. Everything was to emphasis on the expressions and uh, same with the hands. That was when performances were only on stage. But nowadays, we don't need such exaggeration. Now we watch comedians perform on small screens, just inches away from our eyes. We are in an instant society. If you're watching something more than 30 seconds, you'll get bored. So everything changed. You could really see a change when you look, for example, on Mr. Bean, which is on one hand slapstick, on the other hand, nonverbal art with a lot of facial expressions and emotional expressions. Like Charlie Chaplin before him, and like TikTok's new biggest star, Kabi Lame. And so, I wonder, how does the most popular person on TikTok study his audience? How does he know what gestures and facial expressions will work online? In the digital age, content is globalized, meaning that the background knowledge needed to make a joke work is more accessible than ever to everyone. This reminds me of what Professor Vandele said, we enjoy humor because it brings us into a kind of emotional communion with the humorist. It's a special understanding and underlying feeling that we partake of the same background. It's all these elements in the mix that elicit a strange, ticklish joy, which makes us gasp for breath and make our sides hurt. So there's no way to perfectly translate a joke. If the special understanding needed for humor to work isn't there, then the magic can't happen. The joke will never land. We may not get the reaction we're looking for on the first try, but learning to laugh in another language can be a profound way of connecting with people. At the very least, I'm glad to know a joke flopping isn't the end of the world. And, as Atlas himself might say, that's a weight off of my shoulders. Get it, get it, because Atlas is in the name of our show, and also a titan from Greek mythology tasked with the burden of carrying the heavens on his shoulders. Thank you for listening to Atlas Lingue. If you're new to the series, catch up with our previous episodes. I'm Luis Lopez, and it has been a pleasure to accompany you on this journey. Special thanks to our guests. Tiziano Labella, Jerome Vandele, and Offer Bloom. Production and theme by Studio Ochenta. Sound design by Chiara Santella. Senior producer, Grizia Sala. Assistant producers, Haley Choi, Leo Ibanez, Leia Zipstein, and Clark Marchese. For more information on Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta original series and podcast, visit ochentastudio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Ochenta Podcasts. Our podcast is available on CastBox, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Hi, it's Luis here, and I want to tell you about a show we've been listening to called The Pulso Podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that cover Latino culture and news, but this is one of the first we've heard that really utilizes the throughline of history to provide more context and nuance to our stories. From the halls of Congress to the stages of Broadway, even the food we consider to be American, Latinos helped build this country, and we're not going anywhere. Yet most podcasts are still lacking Latino representation behind and in front of the mic. The Pulso Podcast is a Latina-hosted, Latina-produced show that explores untold stories and unheard voices shaping the experiences of nuestra gente. They've covered topics from beauty standards and gender equality to mental health and food origins. And did you know that there is an official Spanish version of the Star Spangled Banner? Or that a team of Mexican lawyers changed the future of segregation laws in the 50s? To hear more, check out the Pulso podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.